Thinnerlogs is a Chicago-based sketch group that writes comedy grounded in shared true, personal stories about our existence as lifelong nerds. We started your stories to give everyone a chance to do what we do, share their own stories, and foster a more heartfelt, welcoming nerd community. Your Stories is about embracing the weird and obscure in your life and asserting your geekdom with a group that gets your references. And, most importantly, Your Stories is a place to bring people up, not to put anyone down. Hey everyone, my name is Eric Arnaud, and this is part one of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories April podcast. But even though this is April, set your brains back one month, because, uh, secrets out, we recorded this in March, and we thought we would talk about the theme of madness, March Madness. Uh, now there's not a lot of basketball here, but there are some sweet and crazy stories from comedy producer Eric Parsons, DePaul radio DJ Shelby Mongan, illustrator Yusuf Abunama, and Columbia student Kaylin Whitfield, as well as, from last month's Nerdalog sketch show, group member Alex Talavera, with the tale of a really bad trip, and Nerdalog's member Chris Geiger kicks things off with a heartfelt reading of some really touching spoken word poetry. Uh, at the end of the episode, you get the usual musical accompaniment from me and Dwight Hassler. So, if you want to see the next Nerdalog sketch show, come out to the Public House Theater, 3914 North Clark Street, on Sunday, April 7th, 7pm, for a show that we have called We're Going to Live Forever. This is a one-time-only sketch comedy review, so if you want to see something cool and funny, be there. Uh, the next Your Stories recording is going to be two weeks after that, same place. The theme of that night is Crime and Punishment. So if that makes you think of anything you want to share, come on down to the Public House Theater and let your voice be heard. Alright guys, thanks as always for listening, and please enjoy the show. So, uh, I've done a lot of weird things in here, uh, <laughs> <laughs> both on, uh, in the Nerdalogs proper and uh, as a monologue, uh, and when we talked about The Mad World, the first thing that spoke to me was this spoken word poem by Shane uh, Quixon called uh, To This Day that I'm gonna recite for you. Um, and if at all this poem speaks to you at all after this, please visit tothisdayproject.com uh, and you can see how you can help out with the message here. So it's To This Day by Shane Quixon. When I was a kid, I used to think that pork chops and karate chops were the same thing. I thought they were both pork chops. <laughs> and because my grandmother thought it was cute and because they were my favorite, she let me keep doing it. Not really a big deal. One day before I realized fat kids are not designed to climb trees, I fell out of a tree and bruised the right side of my body. I didn't want to tell my grandmother about it because I was afraid I'd get in trouble for playing somewhere that I shouldn't have been. A few days later, the gym teacher noticed the bruise, and I got sent to the principal's office. And from there, I was sent to another small room with a really nice lady who asked me all kinds of questions about my life at home. I saw no reason to lie. As far as I was concerned, life was pretty good. I told her, whenever I'm sad, my grandmother gives me karate chops. <laughs> this led to a full-scale investigation. And I was removed from the house for three days until they finally decided to ask how I got the bruises. News of this silly little story quickly spread throughout the school and I earned my first nickname. Pork chop. To this day, I hate pork chops. I'm not the only kid who grew up this way. 
surrounded by people who used to say that rhyme about sticks and stones, as if broken bones hurt more than the names we got called, and we got called them all. So we grew up believing no one would ever fall in love with us, that we'd be lonely forever, that we'd never meet someone to make us feel like the sun was something they built for us in their tool shed. So broken heartstrings bled the blues as we tried to empty ourselves so we would feel nothing. Don't tell me that hurts less than a broken bone. That an ingrown life is something surgeons can cut away, that there's no way for it to metastasize. It does. She was eight years old, our first day of grade three when she got called ugly. We both got moved to the back of the class so we would stop getting bombarded by spitballs. But the school halls were a battleground where we found ourselves outnumbered day after wretched day. We used to stay inside for recess because outside was worse. Outside, we'd have to rehearse running away or learn to stay still like statues, giving no clues that we were there. In grade five, they take the sign to her desk that read, Beware of Dog. To this day, despite a loving husband, she doesn't think that she's beautiful because of a birthmark that takes up less than half of her face. Kids used to say that she looks like a wrong answer, that someone tried to erase but couldn't quite get the job done. And they'll never understand she's raising two kids whose definition of beauty begins with the word mom because they see her heart before they see her skin and she's only ever always been amazing. He was a broken branch, grafted onto a different family tree, adopted, but not because his parents opted for a different destiny. He was three when he became a mixed drink of one part left alone and two parts tragedy. Started therapy in eighth grade, had a personality made up of tests and pills, lived like the uphills were mountains and the downhills were cliffs, four-fifths suicidal, a tidal wave of antidepressants, and an adolescence of being called pauper. One part because of the pills and 99 parts because of the cruelty. He tried to ask himself, he tried to kill himself in grade 10 when a kid who had still had his mom and dad had the audacity to tell him, get over it, as if depression is something that can be remedied by any of the contents found in a first aid kit. To this day, he is a stick of TNT lit from both ends, could describe to you detail the way the, what the sky bends in the moment before it's about to fall. And despite an army of friends who all call him an inspiration, he remains a conversation piece between people who can't understand. Sometimes becoming drug-free has less to do with addiction, more to do with sanity. We weren't the only kids who grew up this way. To this day, kids are still being called names. The classics were, hey, stupid, spaz. Seems like each school has an arsenal of names getting updated every year, and if a kid breaks in a school and no one around chooses to hear, do they make a sound? Are they just the background noise of a soundtrack stuck on repeat when kids say things like kids can be cruel? Every school was a big top circus tent, and the pecking order went from acrobats to lion tamers, from clowns to carnies. All of those were miles ahead of who we were. We were freaks. Lobster claw boys and bearded ladies, oddities juggling depression and loneliness, playing solitaire, spin the bottle, trying to kiss the wounded parts of ourselves and heal. But at night, while the others slept, we kept walking that tightrope, and it was practice. So yeah, some of us fell, but I want to tell them that all of this shit is just debris. Left over when we finally decided to smash all the things we thought we used to be. And if you can't see anything beautiful about yourself, get a better mirror. Look a little closer. Stare a little longer. Because there's something inside you that kept trying despite everyone else who told you to quit. You built a cast around your broken heart and signed it yourself. You signed it. They were wrong. Because maybe you didn't belong to a group or a clique. Maybe they decided to pick you last for basketball or everything. And maybe you decided to bring, you, bring, you brought bruises and broken teeth to show and tell but never told. Because how can you hold your ground if everyone around you wants to bury you beneath it? You have to believe that they were wrong. They have to be wrong. 
Why else would we be here? We grew up learning to cheer on the underdog because we see ourselves in them. We stem from a root planted in the belief that we are not what we are called. We are not abandoned cars stalled out and sitting empty on a highway. And if in some way we are, don't worry, we only got out to walk and get gas. We are graduating members from the class of fuck off, we made it. Not the faded echoes of voices crying out names will never hurt me. Of course they did. But our lives will only ever always continue to be a balancing act that has less to do with pain and more to do with beauty. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Uh, next up, another first time your stories uh, participant, Eric Parsons, everybody. Uh, so I'm going to preface this by saying my wife did not come tonight, in part because she knew the story I was planning to tell. <laughs> my wife is a nerd, as am I but she's not quite the nerd that I was and kind of still am in so much as I have fully embraced the utter sort of uh, cake eaterness that a friend of mine called it, uh, cluelessness of a certain nerddom of not really giving a shit what other people thought when you thought something was cool, right? Uh, but that has that bit of ignorance that we kind of choose to partake in can be a little dangerous in a world that is not rational. As uh, Webster's, uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines mad, it says, mad, completely unrestrained by reason. Well, the world is completely unrestrained by reason despite our nerdly, awesomely best efforts to live it contrary to that fact. However, this is, about, this is a story about how I became accidentally racist. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell you, this is entirely true. Now, I, the only thing I say to ameliorate what you may think of me at this moment of being accidentally racist is the fact that I did come about it innocently in much the same way as the kids I work with who happen to have autism can say terrible, horrible things to you and that you kind of understand working with them that you kind of go, oh, I'm not going to be upset at you because you don't mean to hurt my feelings. You just noticed my hair looks like shit today. Okay. <laughs> Or, no, my Woot shirt is not entirely an accurate depiction of the solar system. I understand. The colors are just not right. And, yes, that happened. Um, so I, I say that because I, I feel like autism, one of the common things is that the, it's not that they're necessarily broken by, try, by not understanding social contracts and all of that in the world. It's that they're trying to see an irrational mad world through a rational lens, and that is problematic. But this is really about how I was secretly, or rather not secretly, but accidentally racist. <laughs> so I grew up in a theater, backstage, a musical theater, mind you. 
in a city named Naples, Florida. If you ever want to see the front lines of class warfare, go to Naples, Florida, where they have made it illegal, basically illegal, to build a house for less than a million dollars within the city limits. Meaning that if you work in the city, you have to commute a minimum of 40 minutes. That's what I grew up around. And so, believe it or not, racism wasn't really a problem where I grew up as a kid because you were either poor or you were wealthy and there really wasn't anything in between and that was the divide that there was. Whether you were black, white, Latino, whatever, didn't really matter if you had money unless you didn't have money, in which case whatever color you were was going to be a problem. Uh, so anyway, I was accidentally racist. I'm getting there. Uh, so I had never experienced that. I, my experience with racism was South Pacific and Sound of Music and Showboat. <laughs> That's what I knew of racism. And I wasn't, I was not carefully taught and I did not hunt down quadroons for fun. Okay. Uh, so here I am, we've moved to Gainesville, Florida, uh, and uh, I'm a naive, nerdy 14-year-old who's really recently just embraced the oddity and wonderfulness of all nerddom and comics and amazing video games. And so I really got nerdy into jazz for a brief period of time, and I played the saxophone. And I ended up on the marching band. And the head, uh, the, 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 there were three of us in our section, and the section leader, who was the senior, was named Cornelius. And he was this tall, amazing-looking black guy who hated me. <laughs> and I had no idea why at all. Could not conceive other than I asked a lot of questions because I wanted to do good. And he seemed to not think, he didn't seem to think that my asking questions of him belayed that any idea that I actually wanted to know things from him, I think instead he thought I was questioning him. Mind you, I figured this out much later after my accidental racism. Um, so we are at a football game, and I'm trying to be part of the team, right? Because we're out here playing for the football game, which is a lot of fun, and people are yelling things and having a good time, and I'm like, yeah, go, defense, great. And somebody yells out, hey, Zebra, get some glasses. And I'm like, oh, hey, nerd brain. That referee has a striped shirt. Of course they call him a zebra, right? Oh. That's hilarious. And I think he knows where I'm going with this. Um, and yes, oh yes, it gets there. Uh, so I'm trying to be part of the, the fun, and I'm like, hey, it's a zebra, great, yeah. Fuck you, zebra, yeah. And then I'm like, how can I add to this? How can I be funny? Because I desperately want to be funny. And I shout out without even knowing, because again, not carefully taught. Hey, Zebra, go back to Africa! <laughs> Moments later, 
I'm lifted by my lapels and shaken furiously by Corn, aka Cornelius, who goes by Corn, and he says, You will never speak again. And I'm like, Oh my god, what's going on? And I did not speak for a week to him ever. Uh, I didn't know why. And finally got up the guts to tell somebody, like, hey, I, Cornelius hates me, and I don't know why. At which point it became clear that apparently it was not a good thing to tell somebody to go back to Africa. <laughs> which, of course, their first question was, well, was the referee black? And to my response was, I don't know. <laughs> Because why would you tell a black person to go back? To, they were born here. Like, that's not, that's not rational. I don't understand. Oh, wait, African-American. Yeah. So I, it, and here's the thing is like, I, I take this and, and, and I'm, I'm going to wrap up here, but Essentially, I, was, I swear, it was accidental racism. And, and on the other hand, I, I, some, I, I worry, like, sometimes I'm like, oh, man, I was the most clueless, terrible, like, not paying attention, insensitive person ever. But on the other hand, I'm like, wait a second. That just meant that something worked, and I had no concept <laughs> of real racism. Because real racism has no rationality and therefore is utterly mad, and I want nothing to do with that. Thank you. That was great, Eric. Thank you very much. Uh, Shelby Mungin. Yay! Can I you seat? So I want to preface this by saying that my story contains spoilers for the original Star Wars trilogy. Nah. <laughs> Feel free to leave if you don't want to hear them. <laughs> I knew someone was going to do that. He's the only Star Wars trilogy. Yeah. Not the long Okay. So, um, how different of a story would Star Wars be if you guys knew from the very beginning that Luke Skywalker um, was going to lose a hand? Or that he was going to want to have sex with his sister? Or that his dad was going to be the big baddie? Right, like how the story wouldn't have been as good. Part of the fun of the story is seeing where it goes and not knowing whether he was going to get off um, his planet and go on an adventure, and when he went on that adventure, what was going to happen. When I was seven years old, I was convinced I knew my life's plan. I was going to grow up. I was going to graduate from MIT. I was going to become a world-famous chemist. Something that doesn't actually exist, but in my head it did. <laughs> in a perfect world, I wish that was true. Um, and I was going to invent a bubble bath that would be a carrier for medicine, so that my mom could relax in the tub and take her antidepressant medicine. Um, I told this to a lot of people, too. I was very convinced that this was going to be my life, because I was obsessed with science as a kid. Every holiday, I asked for experiment kits from Zany Brainy and <laughs> other nerds in the audience. Um, and on my walls, next to my posters of NSYNC um, and Josh Hartnett, was a periodic table. I loved science. But as I got older, it started to occur to me that you need to be good at math to do a lot of science. 
<laughs> and numbers have always escaped me. So I moved on from that dream. Um, when I was in high school, in middle school too, I was obsessed with musical theater. Um, I listened to the Rent soundtrack once a day for yes. at least two years when I was in high school. Uh, I loved theater, and I quickly found out that though I loved performing, I wasn't good enough to uh, at acting and dancing and singing to be on stage uh, on Broadway. And so I set my sights, and my dream job was going to be to work for the New York Times to be their head Broadway theater critic. I was going to write articles, I was going to review shows, see them for free, walk the red carpets with the best of them. That was going to be my dream. And that almost happened. Um, I actually originally came to Chicago to go to DePaul University and study dramaturgy and theater criticism. This close. Uh, about two and a half weeks ago, I submitted my acceptance contract to the University of Dayton to begin my master's in theological studies in the fall. I'm going to go to the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so I went, I went from chemist to journalist to theologian. Really weird, really weird journey um, to look back on. That when I was young, between repeat viewings of Schoolhouse Rock, I was convinced that I was going to be a scientist. And when I got older, um, between trips to New York to see Broadway shows, I was that I was going to be a part of Broadway culture. Now, I am signing away two years of my life to a master's program. I'm going to sign away another probably four or five years to my PhD, um, and however long it takes me to get tenure track, to be an academic. And it's complete madness that at any one time we think we know what we want. Like, it's complete madness to go, yep, this is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. But, what happens if we don't give in to that madness? If we don't, we sit still. Nothing happens. Life doesn't go forward. We don't get to live the dream. We get stuck in an office wondering what it is we're doing with our lives. And so I've only lived for a short time, but I will say that something I have learned is sometimes you just have to pick a passion and go. Let that be your compass, as cheesy as that sounds. You've got to go with that passion and just start walking. Start going. I will tell you right now that there is not a chance in hell I'm going to do anything with science in the rest of my life. But I boldly walked in that direction, and I loved every second of it, and I enjoyed it, and I loved it, and I had a focus and a dream. And sure, I had to divert, and that was fine. Uh, but I walked boldly in the direction of my passion. And what's the worst that can happen if you do that, right? Like, you lose a hand to a lightsaber? <laughs> you can come back from that. <laughs> So Shelby, when are you starting Nerdalog's Dayton branch? Uh, yeah. yeah, right? In September. <laughs> yes, awesome. I'll be calling it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Alright guys, we have uh, this is a night of, of new folks, which is fucking awesome. Yusuf Abunama. Come on up, man. <laughs> Abunama. I'm an asshole. Yusuf Abunama. Hello. Alright, so to preface this, I lived in Dubai for six years from 2000 to 2006. And um, so one of the best things about living there was like you could buy all this awesome fake stuff. Like, <laughs> like you could get like fake video games, fake movies, fake toys. Like, I mean, it's weird. So 
um, when I first moved there, they were very open about it. You know, like you'd just be walking down the street and there'd be a guy with a duffel bag and you'd be like, you want movies? You'd be like, yes, I do. <laughs> and, and at first, they were VCDs, right? And I don't know, if it, it wasn't really popular around here, but they're, they're, it was kind of like an alternative to Laserdisc, which was, they were movies on CDs and, you had, and there were two CDs in each one. And if it was a long movie, like four. So you started with that. But then eventually, you know, they, they started cracking down on bootleg stuff. So, you know, you would go to like the market, right? It's like an open air kind of market thing and everyone's selling you like, you want watches? I got the watches, you know, <laughs> like that. So, um, <laughs> so then, you know, after a while they start really cracking down on this stuff and I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna get some movies. And, and by the way, so like then they switched to DVDs, man. They, these weren't VCDs anymore. Um, so I'm walking down in the market area at night and they're like, you want movies? Yes, I want movies, please. And then he's like, follow me. And I follow him into his <laughs> shop. And then I'm like, okay, so the movies. But no, no movies yet. He takes, there's clothing in the store against the wall on a rack. He moves the rack away from the wall. There's a door behind it. A small door, mind you. And you crawl underneath the door. And then there are stairs. And you descend the stairs, all the while thinking this was a terrible idea. <laughs> and then when you're up there, it's a room, like you would expect, right? But that is not the room with the movies. For this room contains another room. And this room has a little door. Again, which you must crawl under, because it is very short. And then, in that room, there is a fan, there's a water cooler. They offer you water, you sit at the table. And then in the corner, he goes there. There's a carpet, he pulls it up. There's wooden floorboards, he pulls them up. And then within the wooden floorboards, he pulls out a duffel bag. And you sit there and you look at the movies. And they're kind of awesome because sometimes they make fake covers like Josh Harnett as Anakin Skywalker on the cover for some reason. Yes. And, and you, they make compilations, right? So like if you like a movie, they put all the movies that are kind of like it, sort of. <laughs> so, so if you're like, like me, you're like, you know, 16 in 2005, you're like, Kill Bill's pretty cool and so is Blade. You got them all together. <laughs> in terrible quality, mind you. So then, right now, you're in this very good position to haggle. Because you're in this t room by yourself. No one knows you th you're there. So you're like, you seriously gonna sell me fake movies for $2? Are you ridiculous? 50 cents. They're like, no. And then eventually you just give them the money they want. <laughs> because you realize you're in a bad position. <laughs> hey, but then, you know, so that's typically the way it worked around there. So that's my story. <laughs> like the highest pressure sales situation you could be in. Like, dude, I pulled up the rug, I pulled up the floor. <laughs> Come on, I'm not doing this for free. Uh, let's go to Kaylin Whitfield then. Do you know how you can tell a good video game from a bad video game? <laughs> it is the bosses. <laughs> now, I am a fighting gamer, uh, Street Fighter, Marvel vs. Capcom, Tekken's my favorite. All of them have shitty bosses. <laughs> you want to know, the video game I play 
with the best fucking bosses I've ever seen in my life. Chicago, Illinois. Best boss characters ever. The little side quest with the school and the work and the dating, that is nothing. Chicago has the best boss characters. First, two weeks I moved here, I had a buddy who I met at orientation named Shamari who will go unnamed. He was one of my first friends in Chicago. Me and him decided to take a trip to the GameStop over by the legendary White Palace after breakfast at about 4 a.m. I don't know why we thought that would be open. We go over there. My first impression in Chicago is I get chased by a fucking drunk 67-year-old man in army fatigue. And Shamari run our asses all the way across the bridge on Roosevelt from this guy who, by the way, couldn't really even run. He was so inebriated. I mean, there was just no way. But we were enjoying the fun of it. You know, the first boss you fight, you, you get carried away. You want to try all the cool shit. You want to have excitement and fun. And that's exactly what the fuck we did. This is a boss character that you may have all seen before. Meet boss number two, proselytizing man who refuses to look you in the eye. <laughs> Excuse me, young brother, man. Let me, hey, let me tell you, talk to you right quick, little nigga. Hey, shit, hey. Did you heard the word of Jesus lately? He wants to give you a hug. He wants to do all this shit. He wants to suck your dick. If on the train and it's just not... <laughs> it, it's the worst one. It's one of the most horrifying bosses because it, it kind of goes downhill. Can I sit there. down? Yes, you may. <laughs> Devin Rock, everybody. <laughs> Another, the third boss I encountered. I was walking down State Street with my buddy Shamari, who will not be named. <laughs> we're walking down State Street, and I think we're about Madison when we come up on a very, very large man. I think he was about. Six foot eight. He, he was towering over me. This was a big, I mean, stocky guy. He was horrifying and dark and indigenous. <laughs> but uh, we come up on this guy. We approach this guy right at Madison, and he's crying. The guy's crying. This is a true story. This huge six foot eight Mandingo is crying. <laughs> And he spots me, we make eye contact, and I'm like, what's wrong? In my head, I didn't say that. But he comes up, he and the first thing he does is he puts his hand out to give me a handshake. He wants to give me a handshake, and he's like, he's like, how you doing, mister? He comes up to me, and he starts to give me a handshake. I'm terrified. I'm like, I, I didn't know what to do. Uh, so I go up to the guy. I'm just looking at him in the face. I'm like, good, how are you doing? And the guy looks down at me, looks down at me. I'm six foot one, and he looks down like this. He says, I'm trying to get on a train to get out of this wicked city. I look to my side. I'm like, Shamari. Shamari, who grew up in Chicago and is very familiar with its bosses and has beaten the game already. <laughs> <laughs> this unnamed 
motherfucker who was my best friend for a long time left me with this crying six foot eight tribesman and it was horrible. I had to leave. I left him crying there. I feel like a horrible person, but it, that's just how it went down. Fourth boss character. This is one of my favorites. This is a recurring boss character because I had to see this person and some of you may have seen this person walking down State Street. In front of Old Navy in a nice stiffy oh, suit. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little black man. Yeah, y'all know what I'm talking about. It's a little, it's a little older black man, the spiffiest little dude you will ever see in your life with the speaker. And yeah. what is he saying? Ain't no room in heaven for the gay. That is what he's saying. I am a penis enthusiast. <laughs> But uh, I've encountered this guy over and over again. I lived, I lived off of State Street in my dorm, and uh, I've seen this guy over and over again. I was a little bit more tender when I was a teenager about it, and uh, when I saw the guy, I was there with an unnamed friend, Shamari, <laughs> and another unnamed friend, Jeff, who, <laughs> who were my fag stags at the time. And uh, we're kind of, we're going down the street, and we hear this guy, and this is the first time I've ever seen him. They've been looking at this guy their whole lives. Apparently, he's been here since the 60s. <laughs> there's, a, there's a Facebook meme about him and everything. It's gorgeous. But, uh... We walk by this guy, and I decide to myself, this boss, I'm going to play this boss over and over and over again. <laughs> For two years, I walked past this motherfucker, and every time I saw him was a new trouble. I tried out a new attack, and I sharpened my skills. <laughs> and I believe that my favorite attack, the best one I ever did, was me and Jeff. And another friend, Manuel, decided to go down the street to this guy, and we decided we were going to molest him. <laughs> so, standing outside, this guy, here he is again, as always, on the sunniest days. Here he is, spouting all this bullshit. Out, right outside of Old Navy, I'm shocked that they didn't go out of business sooner, honestly. But the guy is out there still, and while our friend Manuel distracts him with questions, I come up and like a scoop of raisins, I take my hands and I take one huge whole butt cheek into my hand and I jiggle it and go <laughs> And he turns around, he's like, oh god damn, what the fuck? He turns around, he's he's grumbling gibberish into his microphone at this point. I take off running around the corner and then Jeff comes around from the other side with a double hyper. Anybody know what a DAC is? A double hyper combo? No, no Marvel's Capcom players. I okay. <laughs> double hyper combo. He comes up, grabs both butt cheeks with a finishing attack. takes off around the corner too. Our buddy Manuel got the whole thing on camera with his fucking thumb in front of the lens. <laughs> The worstest. I was the saddest at that point. But that was that was right before the final battle. The last battle was just four days ago at the Jackson Blue Line stop. Four days ago.
Jackson Blue Line stop. I come up the stairs going home. I was in kind of a bad mood. I had to give some bad news to a friend that day. I was in kind of a bad mood. So I come upstairs. I'm carrying a lot of baggage, my laptop, my sketchbooks and shit. I sit down on the seat. I put my headphones on and I sit down to a rather spiffy motherfucker, if I do say so myself. He's this guy who just has beautiful hair, great clothes. I mean, he was a he was a really handsome guy. Uh, and he's sitting down next to me. He's just got these wonderful shined up shoes. And uh, I sit next to him. I put on my headphones. I'm zoning out to kill switch. And I see an older, maybe 50-something-year-old black man strolling in front of me in the sky. What is this guy doing? I'm sitting here with my headphones. All I hear is, feel the crime. You know, in my head. But this guy's walking in front of us. And I look over, and I see the guy next to me sigh. I take off one earphone just in time to hear this guy say, man, fuck it, baggy. That was the first thing I heard. And so I'm like, oh, fuck. And I look over at this spiffy motherfucker that's sitting next to me. I'm like, okay, I'm dressed like shit. So he must have, this guy must have <laughs> But uh, I look over at this guy and uh, I pat him on the shoulder, which probably which scared him more than the guy who was talking in front of him. I pat him on the shoulder. I'm like, hey, it gets better. And he, I didn't say it gets better, but <laughs> <laughs> I hit the guy. And soon after, the guy is talking to a friend that I guess he saw that he recognized over here among other boss characters. He's communicating with his little side guy or something. I hear that the faggots he was talking about and insulting was both of us. And I thought to myself instantly, oh my god, this guy has fucking sensory magic equipped. <laughs> he is a class five fucking telepath. He fucking knew. He knew all the dicks I touch. <laughs> How did he know? How did he know? Out. The thing that I had done to tell on myself that I've been touching penises was that I was sitting down at the Jackson Stop train station where there were women who actually really needed the seats everywhere. Only women are allowed to sit down on the train station. <laughs> this guy was threatening me and this other guy because we were sitting down in the train station. And you want to know what he did after I find out that he's talking about both of us? He goes over to both of us and does exactly this. Get up! Get, get up! Get up! Get the fuck up! Get, get up! And he's pushing on the guy. The guy who's sitting next to me. And the guy looks terrified and he, he stands up. He's like, man, fuck you. Get a job, man. And he goes over to the other side. I got a job. And so I'm like, oh my God, this guy. He keeps swiping. He keeps swiping his hands in my face, commanding me to get up. And you know what happens when something really crazy happens in public? There's always that guy off to the side watching who's not saying anything. Mm -hmm. I caught one glance with this guy, and out of nervousness, we both just died laughing right there. <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god, this is crazy!" <laughs> we both die laughing right there. I don't get up, but on the way out of the train station. I make sure I stop in front of the guy, and I go up to him and I say, 
I'm gonna sit down on the train too. my story is, the better the boss character, the better the fucking game. There is nowhere on earth, do you know that I stopped watching TV when I moved to Chicago? <laughs> Nothing like any of this ever happens on TV and is never as entertaining. Matt Ruth. There's been some violent fucking stories tonight. You guys lead scary lives. <laughs> so, here's something not a lot of people know about me. I am a crazy person. Yeah. <laughs> in 1999, in addition to a backpack, $50 in cash, and a pair of pants, I lost my mind at a rave on a California Indian reservation after swallowing a mouthful of liquid acid I bought for $20. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> the pants, cash, and bag were definitely because of the acid, but... What actually caused me to lose my mind was The Matrix. And Descartes, and you, <laughs> and a bunch of other metaphysical horseshit I was into at the time. But if I'm being honest here, the lion's share of the credit goes to The Matrix. <laughs> what happened was, I hallucinated that I had overdosed, and God, communicating to me through 90s breakbeat artist Uberzone, <laughs> informed me that I was dead and needed to move on from this reality. Uh, this was a bummer, so I communicated back to God via screaming gibberish and hurling my backpack <laughs> that I didn't want to die. This was apparently tough shit, uh, but God, generous dude that he is, offered me an option. Uh, he could extend my consciousness through my imagination, allowing me to uh, metaphysically live out the rest of my life until I was ready to accept death and move on from this reality. This was not letting me live, let me be very clear. It was an illusion that God would set up for me to keep me thinking that I could live until I had accepted that I had died. So, the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, between a fake reality and nothingness, I opted for fake reality, uh, but in practical sense, what it meant was that everything I experienced from that point on was a figment of my imagination. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Once the drugs wore off, didn't you just snap out of it? But here's the thing. You can come down off acid, but you can't really come down off a psychotic break from reality. <laughs> <laughs> the seed had been planted, and once you start doubting, because reality has no authentication test, you're kind of boned. Uh, what actually ended up happening was that I stopped being able to believe in or trust anything. So, for example, friends would try to give me advice. And even if it was good advice, there was a part of me that thought that that advice was actually coming from me. Because they weren't real people. So, it was good advice, but I couldn't take it because you should never take advice from crazy people. <laughs> I also thought about getting professional help, but I didn't really know uh, where to find it. Uh, and, to be honest, I was embarrassed. We talk about how mental health is stigmatized in this country, but you don't really know what that feels like until you've had a psychotic break based on a Keanu Reeves movie. <laughs> You'll do anything to not talk about that shit. So 
I didn't get help. Uh, and basically what I did was, was, for six months, I was just kind of sad, and I slept a lot, uh, and cried inappropriately at movies like American Beauty. <laughs> I was on a date at that one. Uh, yeah, she should have been dating. <laughs> and then I got to a point where it stopped being bothersome and I decided that fake or not fake this was the hand I'd been dealt and so I needed to go with it and so then I just kind of started living life and then I did that for about six months and I basically uh, did fake it till you make it which was actually very applicable here because one I thought everything was fake. <laughs> Two, I thought I was making it. <laughs> and three, it really did work. Eventually, after spending enough time just pretending everything was fine, it was fine. And I got to a point where I didn't worry about things and I stopped questioning things and I just was able to live life. Inevitably, every time I tell this story to someone, they ask me, well, yeah, but... Now, you, you don't think that anymore, right? You, you're fine, and you don't believe that you make up the world. And I have to apologetically shrug and kind of say, yeah, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Which is embarrassing for a lot of reasons. Uh, not only is it a silly thing to think that uh, you are in the middle of the matrix and you are creating the world around you, but two, it also kind of implies that they're not real people that you're talking to, <laughs> which can't be good for their self-esteem. <laughs> uh, that episode changed me. Uh, it has made me fearless in a lot of weird ways. I don't care about things the way other people care about things. Um, I tend to dismiss everything unless it will actually kill me. If it actually kills me, well, then we'll know what's the story. But everything beyond that, to me, is just kind of secondary. And I feel like this has given me kind of advantages in certain ways and disadvantages in certain ways. But I can't turn it off. <coughs> I wish I could. And I want to believe 100% that all of you are real people with your own thoughts and dreams. <laughs> but who knows? <laughs> And I know that this, in fact, makes me a crazy person. But I don't mind you guys for judging me, because one, you're right to do so. <laughs> and two, if I'm not crazy, well, none of you are real anyway. <laughs> Thanks. What we're going to do to close out the night is play a song that truly, uh, it exemplifies madness. You ready? Uh, okay. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Get it? Father wears his Sunday best. Mother's tired, she needs a rest. The kids are playing up downstairs. Sister sighing in her sleep. Brother's got a day to keep, he can't hang around. Our house in the middle of our street. Our house in the middle of our street. Our house that has a crowd. 
something happening and it's usually quite loud. Oh, mom, she's so house proud. Nothing ever slows her down and the mess is not allowed. Our house in the middle of our street. Our house in the middle of our, our house in the middle of our street. Sponsored by the Chicago sketch comedy troupe The Nerdalogs and is recorded the third Sunday of every month at the Public House Theater, 3914 North Clark Street in Chicago. The stories you heard have been prepared and presented by the speakers on a volunteer basis. Special thanks to Sean Patrick Boyle for his help with recording. Our theme song comes from the band Stage Shirt. For more information on The Nerdalogs, your stories, and everything else, go to www.nerdalogs.com.